welcome to Freedom Revamped, the video podcast. We are so excited for today's episode, and this guest was brought to us by a previous guest. Courtney, can you give them a little history on who our next guest is? Yes, guys. So Ashley Abercrombie, she was introduced to us by Tiffany Bloom, who was a previous guest on the podcast. And today we will be illuminating Ashley about her book, Love is the Distance. I am so excited. And she is also a co-host of the Why Vote podcast. So this conversation should be very interesting as we dive into Love is the Resistance. All right. So without further ado, let's bring out Ashley. Say hello to everybody. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for having me. You guys... Uh, Tiffany absolutely loved you guys. I mean, she just came back the day after it filmed and was totally amped, really enjoyed the conversation with you. So I'm so excited to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. <laughs> awesome. I think it's pretty awesome that you guys are like friends working in cohorts, not only with the podcast, but also as authors. Like, how is that for you guys? How's that dynamic? Yes, it's great. It's, you know, I think that writing and speaking can often feel like a lonely path. And so it's really great when, you know, women are not competing against one, one another, but actually looking to help each other flourish, because then you feel like you have teammates, even though you have a job that it can be really isolating. So yeah, I love being in Tiffany's corner and it's been so fun to partner with her for why though, and so many other things. I love it. <laughs> awesome, Ashley. So as we illuminate you, would you mind sharing with our audience a little bit more about who you are, what you enjoy and what it is you do? Yes. Okay. So I was born and raised in the Southeast in North Carolina. And I lived there for 21 years and loved it. And the only downside is I live, I came from a really tiny town. And so in that small town, it's one of those places where like everybody knows you, but nobody really knows you. And so I feel like I got really good at hiding and pretending and performing my way through life. And, you know, I did my best at the time when I was younger to kind of avoid reciprocal relationships because I didn't know how to say that I have needs or say that you know, um, I need help. I just didn't have the vernacular to even be able to do those things. So I was very often the person people would come to for advice or for wisdom, but, you know, very rarely the one to ask. And so all of that kind of came crashing down. And then I started dealing with addiction, like of many, many things, perfectionism, you know, dysfunctional relationships, drugs, alcohol, eating disorders, like the whole shebang. Okay. Like if you could, if you could, if you could have it, I probably had it. And so I just <laughs> to move to the West Coast. So I moved to Los Angeles when I was 21 years old and didn't know anybody. And for a while, that worked great. Because you're like, there's no expectations here. Nobody thinks I'm somebody I or I should be somebody. You know, I could just be myself. And so I really loved that, um, being in Los Angeles. And I lived there for 15 years where I started my recovery journey. And 18 years sober now, which is great. And, you know, all these years later, it sounds like I'm buttoning it up, but that's not the way recovery works. You know, you're, you're in recovery until, you know, it's your whole life. Like we're always working on something, right? But um, I've learned to enjoy my life and deal with things in a healthy way. And so now I'm married. I have um, three little kids, six, three, and a six-month-old baby girl. And um, yeah, and I've lived in Manhattan as well. So it's it's been a wild journey, you know, 18 years old. Wow. And so I, I write, I speak, but yeah, I love um, cultivating family and relationship and helping people connect, you know, and help people cross their great divides if at all possible to do so. So yeah, just a little bit about me. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. Before we get into the depth of our Illuminate series, we ask every guest that comes to visit us, how do you define freedom? Mm, okay. I love this question so much. So for me, freedom means I'm able to be myself and be the same person in every environment that I'm in. 
So for me, freedom is really about integrity. Like what you see is what you get. What I say I'm going to do to the best of my ability, I'll do it. Of course, we all make mistakes, but, you know, I want people to be able to experience the same person that I am in every environment I'm in. And I work very, very hard to do that. So for me, that's what freedom is. Awesome. So now that you've defined it, our founder has this concept of practicing freedom. So she thinks that it's not just a journey. Um, well, it is a journey. It's not just a destination, right? So it's something that we have to consistently practice, much like you talked about a little bit with recovery. So how do you go about practicing freedom on a regular basis? Mm -hmm. So how I practice freedom is that I make sure I have actual real relationships where people really know me, you know, people that can see when I have you know, a bad attitude consistently with some, one of my family members, you know, and will call me on it or somebody who can see, you know, hey, you're hiding a little bit over here. And this is something that God's called you to do is the dream that's in your heart. Or when I feel like quitting, you know, people can be there. And for people who allow me the privilege of doing the same, you know, that I'm able to show up for them and be present in their life and have earned enough trust that people feel safe with me. And so I think for me, practicing freedom really looks like it starts with my relationships, making sure that they're reciprocal, making sure that they're honest, making sure I'm showing up fully as myself and not hiding. Um, and that's one of the ways that I practice freedom on a daily basis. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing, Ashley. Yeah. So without further ado, let's jump right into why we chose to illuminate you. So we've kind of vaguely touched on it, but Ashley is the author of the latest book, Love is the Resistance. And I am super excited to talk to you about the depth behind this book, the origin, um, all the effort that went into creating this book, um, the connection with spirituality that's throughout the book and things like that. So let's just start there. How did you come up with the concept of this book? Like, let's start at the origin. What was the origin story of writing Love is Resistance? Yes. Okay. So at the end of my last book, the last three chapters of that book were very um, justice focused. I've been working in the, the justice space for about 15 years, mostly with anti-human trafficking initiatives or mass incarceration initiatives. So I've served as a prison chaplain and worked in communities and, you know, just have a deep abiding passion to see justice come to people and to relationships. And so at the end of that book, the phrase love is the resistance kind of just kept you know, going in my head. And part of that was because I love like hashtag resist. I love, you know, like all the things that are, that get us marching in the streets that are allowing us to be able to further progress for people. And at the same time, what I realized is that I was also speaking to an echo chamber and I realized I'm not actually enabling people to change. And I'm not actually, I had no desire to help people change. <laughs> so I really started thinking about people who needed to, you know, and I was like, I don't, this is not good. You know, the only way we're going to make progress is if I'm able to start doing this. And so thinking about love as resistance, you know, in the, in the justice area, but then also love is resistance to anxiety and love is resistance to the hurry that's in our world and love is the resistance to the stress that's in our world. And so it was kind of born out of that. And I really didn't know at the time what we were about to walk into these last couple of years, you know, a global pandemic, you know, we've had political unrest, we've had, you know, so much racial injustice and it's always been there, but all of it has come to the surface in a way that, you know, if you are choosing to ignore it, then you are really like, you're making the choice to not see what's right in front of you. Um, and so I didn't realize that that was going to be happening at the time. So I'm watching people fight and I'm watching people, you know, go off on the Facebook and in the comment sections and in real life and just realize, gosh, you know, we don't know how to fight. We don't know how to do conflict. We don't know how to communicate in a way that's honest and open, but still like 
firm and direct. And so I really wanted to help people be able to do that. So how do we bridge these gaps? How do we deal with conflict in a healthy way? And then how do we learn to end relationships that need to end? You know, how do you have those difficult, hard conversations that sometimes we have to have with family members or friends or people who are part of our faith community or maybe even someone at our work? And so I realized we just don't know how to do that. And that would actually help us walk out love in a different way. And that would actually help us have justice in our relationships with one another. So, yeah, that's where it came from. Absolutely. I think that was one of the early conversations that me and Courtney had on the podcast was discussing all that was going on in the world and not really having a solution for how we could be the change, like what we could do to change things. Um, So throughout this conversation, both myself and Courtney will be asking you questions. Um, So you'll be kind of back and forth between the both of us. Um, And then if you have anything that springs up that you just want to say in response to something that you might have said, or if you want to elaborate further, feel free to do so. Awesome. So this book is coming out, like you said, at a very important time considering the world around us um, and the things that are going on, the, like you mentioned, the political and social conflicts. So what do you think um, as far as like, do you think that this is going to be like a change agent? Do you think that people are going to look at the book and think of it as almost like a guide of like what they can do to help the resistance in the world around us? Yes. I mean, that is my hope and my desire. And I think that one of the things we're really missing in the world that I want to, that I spend a lot of time laying out in the book is that we don't think thoughtfully about why we do what we do. You know, even why we formed the opinions that we have or why we formed the political beliefs that we have and where they come from. You know, sometimes we have inherited things from the home we grew up in or from our education story. Because you spend, you know, as a young person, you spend the vast majority of your time out of your home under the care of other adults who are teaching you, you know, hierarchy within classrooms. They're teaching you how to relate to other children. Like, and we learn all that outside of the home as well. And then for many people, they have some sort of faith story or a connection to God or know people in their family who maybe had a connection to God and that made an impact on them. And all of that shapes and forms who we are and how we think. And then how we think is what we do. And so I think that we don't spend enough time thoughtfully thinking about that. And because we don't, we're so um, not self-aware, then we are not generous in our ways of looking at others and viewing them. And, And we do not allow room for their context to be different than ours. And so we feel this need to judge, judge it or critique it or say that it's wrong. And I think sometimes we really need to stop for a minute, go, wait a minute, wait a minute. How did I get where I get? Like, why, where I, why am I thinking what I'm thinking? You know, why did I repost this thing? I don't even know where it came from or why I'm saying it, you know? And I think that we need to stop and do that because that makes us actually more compassionate for the context of others. Like, the more I understand myself, the less judgmental I am towards other people, right? Mm-hmm. And the more I can also, like, stand up in my convictions to do what's right when it needs to be right. Because sometimes people say crazy things and they do crazy things. They need to be held accountable for their words and for their actions. And I said, that's the other side of it, right? So it's not just, hey, let's not judge anybody. But it's also like, wait a minute, sometimes things just are wrong. And absolutely harmful. And so I think the more we're acquainted with our context, the more understanding and wisdom we have, then I think that that enables us to have that in the world around us and to speak the truth when it needs to be spoken and to do the thing that needs to be done. <laughs> Definitely. Because like, they, what do they say? Common sense is not always common. I don't think that everyone, <laughs> well, everyone isn't mindful. Everyone's, I think the hardest thing, like becoming an adult for me was realizing that everyone doesn't think the way that I think. So yeah, I think that this makes sense, but that, that might not make sense to others or like, yes, I wouldn't behave that way, but others might choose to behave that way. So that's probably been the hardest thing is like 
learning to find love and mercy, give mercy to others because they're different. They're just different. Totally. Totally. It's hard. (laughs) Absolutely. So I'll let Courtney go ahead and ask a question to you as well. Yeah. And I was just about to kind of piggyback off what you just said about love and mercy. One way that I've learned to extend love, grace and mercy to other people is because God extends it to me. The person who created this world extends that grace and love and mercy to me. And it's kind of crazy to me that you named the book Love is the Resistance because when you think about it, God is love. So God is the resistance. When you think about it like that. And yeah. throughout this book, you do mention, mention Christianity. And actually, one of your chapters is about cancel culture, which is something we discussed throughout this season as well. So I want to ask you, as Christians, how do you think we should respond to someone being canceled? Yes. Well, I think that we've mixed up a few things when it comes to cancel culture. Because sometimes we think about cancel culture, we call something canceling when it's actually just holding someone accountable. You know, I love my dear friend Selena Lockett always says that cancel culture is like civil court. So, for example, people like a Harvey Weinstein or an R. Kelly, um, Matt Lauer, like these Megan Kelly, like these people who are not held accountable until the public has a major outcry. Right. And so that's not being canceled. It's like you made a big mistake. And since your board won't hold you accountable, we the people will. And it ends up forcing the hands of the board or forcing the hands of, you know, their organization to be able to do something because they are hurting people or harming people or abusing people with their words or with their actual actions. And so I think, you know, that's not the same as cancel culture, right? And I, I do think that you know, cancel culture is one of those things where we just have to go, wait a minute. All right. Some things are just absolutely ridiculous, right? Like I even think about, I write about a bunch of different examples in the book, in the book, but for example, Nicholas Sandman, and I don't know if you guys remember when this happened, but he was in Washington DC marching for a pro-life rally. And the clip that went out like very broadly around the world was one of a native American elder, you know, beating a drum in this kid's face. And the clip went around saying that he was the young man was making racist remarks to the Native American elder. And that's why, you know, um, this was all happening. But the truth is he was fighting with another group and the Native American elder was beating the drum in order to bring peace between the two groups. And so everything went out and it was all the wrong information. So what happened is this young man sued two TV organizations for what they put out into the world. And he won half a billion dollars. <laughs> so you're like, okay, oh can I canceled? I mean, I, I don't mind. <laughs> like, this, so it's like, this goes, okay, I'll, I would like to sign up. I'm fine, yes. Um, and I think that sometimes it just goes way too far. And, you know, I think that one of the things I also noticed about cancel culture is that, you know, we live in this world where you'll see podcast series about this. You will see some churches do series about this. And I don't very often find women, you know, doing a women's conference based on the theme of cancel culture or a whole podcast series based on the theme of cancel culture. And yes, we talk about it, obviously, just like you guys said that you've already done, but it's not a whole series the way that it is on the news or, you know, men seem to really want to talk about this, but I find that very interesting. And I write about this in the book too, because I think that women, you know, and especially women of color are more in tune with what cancel culture really feels like on an actual day-to-day basis. Like women know what it's like to speak up and to be shamed for it and to be silenced for it or to be kicked out of a meeting or to even lose their job. And no one's saying anything about it. It just happens on the regular. 
And so I really tease out all the nuances of cancel culture and what it means for us, what it does to us. And so as far as how a Christian should respond to being canceled, I think it depends on the situation as I've just laid out. It's like, I, I hope that people like Harvey Weinstein will continue to be held accountable, you know, and I hope that people like Nicholas Sandman, you know, and I'm, I'm sorry for that the news media did put out something that wasn't entirely true about him, but also they were making rude, crazy comments. And I'm sorry that that resulted in $500 million. I mean, $500 million being spent and given over to this young man. You know, like, I don't like that either. Yeah. But I'm sorry that it happens to women on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, somebody speaks up about sexual abuse in their family and the family disowns them. You know, so I think that this is a very real thing and Christians need to respond in a case-by-case -case basis. I also think that Christians can do a better job of not feeding the, the rage, you know, like, that's true. huge, you know, we don't have to, we don't have to offer our opinion for everything that comes out on Twitter or comes out on Instagram, comes out, yeah. you know, there are times when we could be quiet and just pray, you know, and I think that, it, but the response really, I think, depends on the situation. Definitely. And with that being said, like, I feel like council culture has been kind of a watered down concept within the church for a long time. It yeah. just named cancel culture. Nice. So if you think of that, like how do you think cancel culture has affected the church? And like, is it a new practice for Christians? Because when we think about it, like if I think back to the mistakes that might've been made by someone who was on staff at the church and then all of a sudden the church is in uproar or they don't want to attend the church anymore. Like that was just, a small version of cancel culture like that very much what it was it just didn't have a name yet so how do you think it has affected the church yeah it's it's interesting you know i think about people like martin luther king jr because at the time so many churches wanted to cancel him right like we can look back mm -hmm. with hindsight and everybody wants to post the quote several times a year but back then you know the white church wanted to cancel him completely most of them and then I think about Ruby Bridges. I think about Dolores Huerta and Cesar Chavez. You know, I think about like there were several states that just wanted all of Dolores's names removed from history books. You know, I think about how private Christian churches for a long time resisted integration. I think about, you know, um, Jen Hatmaker. I think about Lecrae, you know, when he decided yeah. to speak up about, you know, racial injustice and all of the white evangelical church went crazy. So I think that we have a history actually in the church of doing this. And I think that it's irresponsible. And then to your point, you know, sometimes somebody on staff maybe does something that's very difficult for people to process. Maybe they have an affair. Maybe they do something on a broad scale. Maybe abuse uh, of power is discovered and it's difficult for people to process. And I never fault anybody when they have to leave a faith community due to that process because sometimes that is part of the healing process is to remove yourself from the situation. But I definitely think in all of our naming you know, cancel culture and different things like that, then we either do what we've done in the past with some of the people that I named and, and we want to erase their legacy or pretend like they don't exist or call them a communist or a Marxist in order for us to not have any relationship with somebody who is doing actually really good work. Or sometimes we don't have any hope for redemption in the church and we take one person's story who's on staff and who's in power and then we decide that the church is just like not worth it, period. And so I think those are the, the extreme ends and we got to find a place in the middle where we say, you know what, the church still has an opportunity to see redemption on the earth and people will make mistakes. Like that is just what happens. Yeah. Um, find a way forward, you know? Absolutely. It's definitely that grace and mercy because all I can think of is just like how hard it is to, um, one, be a Christian today, not because I'm just like 
the world and all the opposition that comes with the world. But thinking about those little things, like we're not perfect, but I think there is this concept or this like lowering responsibility for those who say that they're Christians to feel as though they, we have to be perfect. Okay. So then when mistakes happen. We're so hard on ourselves and we're so hard on each other because it's like, mm-hmm. you're a Christian. You're not supposed to make these mistakes. Right. But far from the truth. We're making these mistakes because Christ came to die to redeem us of those things. So obviously we're, we don't want to use that as a card to go just make a bunch of mistakes, but knowing that in doing so he's there to redeem us of those things. So I think that's the, the biggest thing for me. And like, like I think Courtney mentioned this earlier, that the thing that stuck out to me too, with the title is like thinking of God as love and knowing that he is the resistance that alone, like he already showed us how to handle these things. And if we could just be obedient and pay attention to those things, we'd know that like, this is the time in which we're supposed to love one another, regardless of what we've done. Understanding that this is the love and mercy that he's shown us, like literally reflecting the same behavior that he's given us on those around us, even though it's hard. Yes. Because <laughs> people do things that are harmful to us, like and that affect us emotionally or physically for that matter. And it's like almost unforgivable, but it's you have to ha- find it in you to be merciful. Yes, totally. And I think some Christians are afraid of forgiveness because they think that forgiveness and reconciliation are the same thing. But they're not. You know, when I make a choice to forgive someone, and I've had to plenty of times, like I think about you know, going through a sexual assault, like I had to forgive that person without ever having any closure. I forgave them without their participation. They never said sorry. Mm-hmm. They never came back and made it right. And they probably won't on this side of heaven. And so part of forgiveness is letting go so that I don't continue to allow that to color the way that I think about the world and the way that I act in the world and the way I think about the world. And I didn't want to live, you know, afraid of men, afraid to trust, afraid to be vulnerable. And so I had to work through that whole process so that I could engage in the world in the way that I wanted to. And so sometimes that, you know, it doesn't mean that when we forgive that we have to reconcile. And I think when Christians really fully understand that, it's like when I'm choosing to forgive someone is because I want to be free. You know, and reconciliation takes two people like that is a mutual decision for both people to get the help they need so we can then walk together. But if somebody's not willing to change and they're not willing to say sorry and they're not willing to work on their crap, like I'm trying to work on my crap, then it does not mean we have a way forward. Like there just isn't. So forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. Absolutely. And that's beautiful. It's a wonderful quote. (laughs) (laughs) That sort of brings up another question I have, because in the description of the book, you mentioned how we should love everyone, but especially those who we disagree with are those who have wronged us. So since we're talking about love, forgiveness, I want to bring up hate. How can how do you feel that love cancels out hate and how can that um, more so lead to love being the resistance? Yeah. So I love in Romans um, where it says that we are to owe no man but to love him. And so the reason I love this is because it doesn't say, oh, no man, but to like him. (laughs) I I have to love everybody. I don't have to like them. Okay. So I don't have to, you know, make sure that I'm trying to spend time with people that I don't like, or that I have no connection to, or that who are rude people. It just says to love people, you know, and it is a commandment in my faith. Like it's a commandment for me to do that. And so I think love looks a little different than like. And again, it doesn't mean that you have to be in relationship with everyone. But I do think, um, you know, hatred is not a part of our life. Like hatred turns into things that are 
you know, we'll perpetuate stuff in our life that we don't even want. So if we choose to hate a people group, for example, because maybe we were raised to, maybe our parents did, maybe people, you know, around us, educators decided to tell us, you know, whether they made comments about immigrants at our borders, or perhaps they made comments about, you know, women. I don't know what the things would be. We all were probably raised with some type of rhetoric that we have to unlearn and undo. But that type of hatred living on the inside of us actually impacts the way we think and it impacts the way we interact with other people. And we are unable to actually reach over and love. And again, I think people want, are hesitant to love because it takes a lot of energy and it takes a lot of time to discipline yourself, to not um, be judgmental of others and to just let things ride, you know, to not be involved sometimes when you don't need to get involved. Um, and again, love and like are not the same thing. <laughs> so you don't have to like everybody. You just have to love everybody. <laughs> and I think that's absolutely. I feel like you're developing a lesson plan with all the things that we need to learn as Christians so that we can live a, a, a little easier of a life because <laughs> yes. we have such a hard time. <laughs> totally. And it brings more peace when you're able to do these things, right? Like, Definitely. I don't need to be caught up with all this stuff in my head. I don't want to spend time hating all these people. <laughs> right. So I always say that it's harder to hate someone than it is to love them. Yeah. Like all that goes into like, ah, oh, you get on my nerves. I don't want to talk to you or trying to avoid someone or trying to hold a grudge is so much harder than just loving them. It so. is. It takes all your energy. Absolutely. So I'm excited about this next question. And I'd love to hear your answer. Um, so we just talked about like the political unjust, like all of the stuff that was going on last year. And it was sprouting up a lot of people speaking out within the church. And with us being on like a lot of us using virtual platforms, a lot of those things were going viral or they were showing up in social media where pastors were speaking up in regards to politics, which created a little bit of a blurred line between, you know, religion and politics or faith and politics. So how do you think that some of that has gone a little bit too far, like putting these things together and having um, churches speak out or create a stance in regards to politics. Yeah. So there were so many interesting things about this last year. I mean, how much time do we really have? Right? <laughs> There's so much to talk about here. But I remember like a very particular moment and I write about this in the book as well. And it was, you know, on Jan in January when the insurrection happened at the White House. And I remember sitting there watching this on my news screen and just being completely disturbed. And above the lower third, as they were describing what was happening, you know, there was a sign in the crowd that just said, Jesus saves. And I was like, no, like, this is not God. Like, I was so infuriated to see that. Because I'm thinking they're, they constructed a noose outside the White House. A Confederate flag marched down the halls of, outside the Capitol. A Confederate flag went down the halls of Congress for the first time in our entire history. Like, think about in America's history, that's the first time that ever happened. And then I think about, you know, there were militiamen who had ties around their waist and they're, you know, we're hiding Congress people all over the place. And I'm like, are we joking? Like, first of all, why is the Jesus save sign at this political rally? In the first like, why, why is it there? You know, it doesn't, it was out of place and given the actions that happened. And I am aware that there are some people who might've been in that crowd who had no intention of storming the Capitol that day. I do know that. And at the same time, it's like, as soon as I saw what was going down, I would have been running. I mean, I wouldn't have gone there in the first place, but believe me, if I saw it going down, I would have been running. And so I feel like that is a good example of when faith and politics goes too far. When you are fully convinced that God has a chosen candidate and that God is on your side and that he is, you know, going to make it happen and he might use you to do crazy things to make it happen. I think you can safely say it's gone too far. 
Um, and I think that that is, it's a real thing, you know, like we have to really think about why am I doing what I'm doing? And I think there's a difference between being political and meshing your faith with your politics, because I think that if we're going to be, you know, fighting for gender equality and we're going to be talking about issues of racial injustice, like there are going to be times where we have to care about politics because policy breaks down to a person. And so that means that we need to care about policy. We actually need to care about what happens to the 145 million people in our country, which is one third of the country who are living at or below the poverty line. Like Christians should care about this. So there are times that we need to care about politics and get involved in policy at a local level so that we know what's going on so we can be more connected to our neighbor and more readily able to love our neighbor because we understand what our neighbor is actually going through. And then there are those times where we just think that, you know, God's on our side and God loves our candidate the most and he yeah. has everybody on the other side. And I love that Anne Lamott, she's a wonderful writer, and she said, you can safely assume that you have created God in your own image if it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. And mm. I love that because, you know, God is not sitting up there like, I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat or I'm, I'm a American. Okay, this is not who God is. And so no. make God out to, you know, carry the banner of our agenda. That's really just us, you know, doing our thing. So yeah, I think that it's it's most definitely gone too far, but it doesn't mean that Christians get to opt out of the civic space either. Like God puts you here, which means you have a role to play and and an opportunity to participate in the love of your neighbor. Yeah, I think it's frightening because even with that statement there, like needing to participate, I feel like a lot of Christians were like nervous in the like most recent election, like you know, I don't want to vote for Trump because I feel this way, or I want to vote for Biden because I feel this way, so I'm just not going to vote at all because I just feel like that's the right thing to do, or they feel like God doesn't want me to go through the stress of deciding on who to vote for. Like, people literally will say that God has said so many things, and I'm just like, when you get to heaven, God's going to have a lot of questions about all the things you said he said that he didn't actually say. <laughs> but, yes. You know? Because, like you said, like, when you think about creating God in your image, oftentimes the things that we want is what God's telling us, right? We don't want to believe that he's telling us the things that go against what we want. Like, we don't want to believe that God is saying that, like, you need to participate in, in performing your civic duty because it could help your community and it could help future generations. Because that sounds like responsibility and that's a task. Yeah. I don't want to take that on. I don't want to be responsible. Um, so I think that that's the scary part, too. But one other thing that I kind of have, like, a sub-question in regards to this is with, like, so much of politics being centered around, uh, well, here in America, all of the unjust that's been going on for years and that being like the full front as to why, why people select the certain candidates that they select. Um, a lot of people feel as though like the candidate that has everyone's interest in mind has to be the right one when we're talking about faith, because obviously God wouldn't want us to struggle or whatever the case may be. So how do we go about um, correctly using our faith to fuel our decisions or using our faith to um, perform I don't, I don't, efficiently in politics. There we go. Mm -hmm. So a couple of things here. And, you know, the, I think that there are plenty of Christians who may say differently than me. And so just know that, uh, you know, if you're watching this, that could be somebody else has arrived at a different conclusion. But I do believe, you know, I use my faith when I think about who I would like to see in office because I care about policy. That matters to me because, again, I know what it's like. I, I, did, I didn't go above the poverty line until I was 27 years old, which is young for some people. 
people that I didn't go above the poverty line before this. And to me, I care about things like healthcare. I care because I know what it's like to not have it. And I know what it's like to have medical debt. And I know what it's like, you know, to birth a baby and then be hit with a $28,000 bill that I have to talk insurance off a ledge. Like, I know what these things feel like. So it matters to me. It's personal to me. And so I think that we all have these things that we really do care about. We have different issues that we care about, and that's important. And so when we're thinking about, you know, how God might want us to move in the civic space, I think that we have to think about what are the things that we're passionate about. And then I think that we have to remember that the Lord gives us free will. He allows us to choose, right? And so God is not up there saying, if you decided to vote this way, it's going to be against me. And, you know, you're going to be sinning. You're going to be doing this or that. Because I have met people in the last year that will say, like, my family tells me I'm not a Christian if I decide to vote Democrat. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? And I was lucky enough not to grow up in a household where people told me how to vote. You know, we were voting. We were debating all the time. Like, everybody's different. I have some Republicans in my family, some Democrats in my family, some independent in my family. So we were able to engage in public discourse in a way that didn't hinder or hurt our relationships. It was just an actual normal part of what we do. It's the same way to me. Somebody decides they want to send their kids to public school. Somebody else decides they want to send them to private school. Somebody else wants to send them to homeschool. And so none of these choices are bad, but it also means that I can't sit there and say everyone who decides to homeschool is a terrible person and they should really do this, you know? And of course, I do feel strongly about some candidates. Like, that's just the facts. And I think to myself, I don't know how a Christian could vote this way or that way. So I definitely still have those thoughts. So I'm human. But at the same time, I think the powerful part of a democracy is that we get a choice. And the powerful part of God is that he lets us choose. And so I think we just can't put too much weight on, you know, God said this or God said that. I think we just said, to me, that always feels like a cop-out for taking responsibility for your decisions. Like, for you actually thinking about why you want to make the decision you want to make and owning that like a responsible person. So how I choose to vote, I don't say, you know, God told me to vote for this policy. Like I don't do that, you know, and that's just, and I'm deeply convicted about that. It's like, I, I thought I prayed, I waited against the people who I know are struggling and hurting. And this is my decision, you know, and I let it ride. And so I think that we need to stop assigning so much to God. You've already said it, but I think that we need to stop doing that. Awesome. Agreed. Yeah, I have another question because I'm actually reading the subtitle to the book. So the full title is Love is the Resistance. Then the subtitle says, learn to disagree, resolve the conflicts you've been avoiding and create real change. So when reading this, um, a lot of our conversation has been about politics because it's so easy to apply all of that to politics. But what other areas in our lives do you think this applies to as well? Mm-hmm. So I think when it comes to dealing with conflict and learning to disagree and creating real change, I mean, we all can bottom level our our closest relationships, right? And I think if we were to each examine our closest relationships, we would probably discover that there are some conflicts and tensions, you know, that we deal with on a weekly or monthly or at least yearly basis. (laughs) So I think that conflict is normal. That's the hill I want to die on. I want people to really understand that conflict is normal and that (laughs) conflict is actually a means to connection. And so if you do conflict well, you actually grow in your relationship. You grow in vulnerability, you grow in intimacy, because what healthy conflict looks like is just having a difficult conversation. And if you are, you know, the good news is, is that conflict and is a communication skill we can learn. 
You know, very few people I meet grew up in a household where, you know, their parents or their caretaker or their single parent or whatever the situation might be, you know, knew exactly how to handle conflict. You know, it's not that often that we grow up with these examples. You know, you might hear, you might see somebody being very volatile or somebody sweeping things under the rug or people bickering constantly because they don't actually want to have a hard conversation and solve something. So they just do this all day long, you know. And I think that's most people. That's what we grow up with. And, you know, same thing in school. Something will happen in the classroom. Nobody ever talks about it again. You're like, what did you, what just happened? You know, and nobody talks about it. They don't revisit it. And so yeah. these are the examples that we grow up with. And so in our most intimate relationships, and then of course that extends to our work relationships, to our faith community, if we have one, like the different circles that we're a part of, maybe a campus group that we're a part of. And so I think all of this extends out, but it starts with kind of that first circle. Are we able to confront others? Are they able to confront us? Can we have hard conversations or would we rather just avoid conflict like the plague? And I think part of the reason we do that is because we're afraid that we're not going to say it right, that the conversation is going to be too hard. And then we decide in the moment not to do it, not to deal with something right then. And then it just gets bigger in our mind, right? Because you haven't dealt with it. So the next day you're like, this now it's worse. Like if I try to go back now, it's bad. I can't do it. And we feel like we can't revisit conversations. We can't try again. And so I really want to help people understand that conflict is messy. It's normal and that we need to do it. You know, we just got to do it. And it's okay to say to people like, hey, I need some grace. I don't know how to have this conversation, but the reason I want to is because I love you. And I believe if we have this, this conversation, it's going to actually make us closer. So can I ask for some grace as I say some things? I might not do it right. I might not say it right. But I really want to have this conversation with you. And I think if we could do that, gosh, our relationships would just be richer and better and more memorable. Definitely. And I think the perfect next question to ask is with thinking about conflict and you just mentioned it, like the practice of grace, like how do we practically extend this grace to these people that we disagree with? Because I think that that's the hard part for me. It's like they always say agree to disagree. And that's like so hard, especially when you have such you're so passionate about your stance um, and you might be in like great disagreement with the other person. So how do we work on like practicing that grace? And I would like to say immediately, because I think sometimes we do a lot of harm in the immediate moment that we have to go and like clean up later. So like, how do we work on doing that initially so that we can avoid any, any hurt and pain right away? <laughs> right. Okay. So there is something um, in the psychology world called differentiation and differentiation. Just it's, it's basically like having healthy boundaries. So here's what it means. It basically means like I can you know, express my thoughts, my feelings, my needs, and my desires. And then I can tolerate somebody else doing the same thing. And so I think sometimes we are unable to articulate what we actually want from the conflict, what our thoughts and feelings are around the conflict. And don't forget, people who explode in the moment are also just avoiding intimacy and connection the same way somebody who sweeps it under the rug is, right? Because they're still not talking about the issue at hand, right? And I know because I tend to be more of a fighter. I'm not the one to just be like, Let's be quiet about this and pretend it didn't happen. I'm like, what is going on? You know, that tends to be my, my instinct. <laughs> but when we're able to clearly articulate that, then we're also able to leave room for the other person to express how they felt about our part in it and what they think about the situation and what their desires are for the situation. And we're able to tolerate it and take it in and listen to it. And I really think that's where we get tripped up because we don't have healthy boundaries. 
and we either are not a safe person or we're in relationship with people who are not safe people. And then the relationship deteriorates quickly or the conflict goes sideways. And we haven't just learned basic things like, you know, in recovery, two, two principles I'll give you guys very quickly that are so helpful in a conflict is using I statements. So instead of being like, you, 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 you know, you're actually able to pause and go, you know what, when you did this, fill in the blank, or when you said this, fill in the blank, it made me feel like this, made me feel hurt, made me feel angry, it made me feel sad. Is that what you intended? And can you see how that question right there can just diffuse a whole conflict? Oh, yes. So you're using I statements and you're talking to people. And the other principle I've learned from recovery is no crosstalk. And so what no crosstalk means is that you don't talk when another person's talking. <laughs> and then you just you make the, the strong decision to not give them advice to not offer them, you know, six books to tell them what they should have done better. You know, it's like no crosstalk means I'm here to listen and mirror back. You know, one of the questions my husband and I will ask in a conflict when the other person shares is, is there more? So we wait till they're finished. And then instead of, you know, responding, because the whole time you're thinking about how you're going to respond to them, yeah. instead we'll say, is there more? Or we'll mirror the response back. What I hear you saying is, and we'll repeat back what we thought we heard, is there more? And then that gives the other person a chance to say, you know what, that isn't actually what I meant. Here's what I'm trying to say. And yeah, there is a little bit more. Or no, that's everything. I've shared everything I want to share about that. And then you have an opportunity to go as well. So it takes a lot of maturity. It takes a lot of self-control. But it works. And it works so much better. <laughs> Absolutely. I'd have to agree. So I think one of the things that just stuck out in what you just said about like taking the moment to hear instead of like prepare to respond right away is I think that um, the main thing that causes a lot of disagreements is just like not understanding why someone feels the way they do. Right. And yeah. I mean, that's like with everything that we're dealing with, like when we're talking racism, like yes. as a black woman, I don't understand how someone could hate me and never have met me or know anything about me. Um, or when we talk about like the LGBTIQ community, like it's something that we don't have all enough clarity on, especially with me being in a biased position as a heterosexual woman. I can't speak to why they feel the way they feel. So that um, lack of clarity there also like breeds a little bit of hate. So do you think that a lot of times um, what we're looking at as far as like the hate and the um, just the pain and hurt that the world is causing one another is coming from this lack of understanding. Like if we took the time to do, as you said, and like positively communicate with one another, that might be the fix right there. Um, understanding where everyone's coming from. The beautiful thing that I heard you say there is like having that moment or taking that pause to have the person like reiterate what it is you that you believe them to have said. And then for them to be like, well, actually that's not what I meant. Here's how I fix it. That there clears up so much because if you take what they say for face value and you give them no chance to clarify, that's where a lot of our conflict springs up. It's like, I think you meant this and that's not at all what they meant. So how do you feel about that in the way that it like obviously functions within our society? Yes. Well, I love this because you're right. It happens to people. It happens online all the time, which is a whole other thing. That's like another hour conversation you could do about how to behave online because people oh, are crazy. <laughs> but I do think, yeah, you're right. It's the, the wisdom and the understanding and honestly, the kindness that we're so unwilling to extend to people who are different than us or people who don't look like us or think like us or vote like us or live like us. And, you know, it's, it's that lack of kindness, that lack of generosity that we're willing to show people that shows me that we have not fully arrived in love. 
you know, and, and Jesus talks about this. God talks about this. All the, uh, all the apostles and all the people who wrote the new Testament talk about this over and over again. Like the, in first John, it talks about how, if you, if you hate your brother or sister, you don't love God. That's literally what it says. Like if you hate your brother or sister, you don't love God. And so it's huge to think about this. And I think asking questions, that's why our judgments and our biases are so important. It's important for us to critique them thoughtfully, to ask why we believe what we believe, where does it come from? And then I think that, you know, when you have people in your life who are different, you automatically can have a more generous response because then you're aware you have more awareness for different cultures. You have more awareness for different genders. You have more awareness for different languages. You have just more awareness, period, about where people come from and why they think what they think. And it cultivates a generous love for neighbor. And one thing I love about scripture, too, is that, you know, God doesn't give us the opportunity to opt out of love because it feels hard, you know, and mm -hmm. us telling people how we think they should behave, us setting a standard over them is very unhealthy and not like God. And I finished the book um, going through Romans uh, 14 because it talks about, you know, when we when we um, condemn others, we don't show ourselves approved unto God. So it's like, oh, I mean, that is that's sobering and that is scary. But to know that what I think is right and the, what approvals I give actually condemn me before God. I mean, this kind of stuff is like nobody preaches on this. Okay, because it's so much easier to just be like, here's who we hate, here's what we're for, here's who we're against. You know, these are the issues that we're going to tackle and tell people how they ought to live and why they're messing up the church. And, you know, it's like, come yeah. on. You know, you don't see Jesus doing this. You don't see the disciples doing this. You don't see it in the New Testament. Was there sometimes times where they, you know, said a hard word about how we're supposed to live and relate to each other? Absolutely. But you don't see God going around trying to police everybody's behavior. And in fact, the only people he talked ugly to were religious leaders. And so we really need to get it together. <laughs> he knew then. We were still working on that change now, but he's going he's gonna to be our intercessor. He's going to step in and help. Yes, and thank God for that. <laughs> so before we close out, um, and I have Courtney ask you how we can connect with you and purchase the book, obviously. Um, I want to charge you with helping us to give our audience a little bit of help work. So what is your charge with this book? Like, what would you like? Because um, usually every week we give our listeners some help work, something that they can take practically into their week to practice what it is we've learned here on the platform. So what is one thing that you think that we can give them as a assignment or an exercise or maybe just something to be mindful of in this coming week as they go into this week thinking about love as resistance? Thank you for that question. So at the end of every chapter, I have four things for you. And so I have an attitude for you to adopt, an affirmation for you to speak over yourself, a reflective question, and then a technique for communication. And so I love those things. So maybe I'll give you two of those right now. And the first one is this, having an attitude of curiosity. And that's how I finished the first chapter. Like, what would it look like for me to respond to people with curiosity instead of judgment, instead of, you know, flying off the handle in the middle of a, con a conflict? Like, what would it look like for me to pause, to ask a question, to ask myself a question, to ask the other person a question before I just respond and start going like this with people? What would it look like <laughs> for me to just stop and ask questions? Like having an attitude of curiosity. And then maybe a reflective question you could ask this week, and maybe some of you are already, you know, self-aware enough, but if you aren't, Maybe the question you could ask is, you know, why do I do what I do? 
you know, like start to think critically about how you formed your belief systems and don't fall apart on this. I'm not talking about going so internal that you're like, ah, world's going to hell in a handbag. But I am just talking about like, Hey, when I come up against some type of conflict or I come up against something that feels hard for me this week, or I don't feel like I can have a little bit of a breakthrough moment that I want to have, like, why do you do what you do? Where does that come from? You know, where do those negative beliefs about yourself come from? Where do those negative beliefs that you have about others? And suspend your judgment. So don't condemn yourself, but just think thoughtfully about it. Like, why do you do what you do? And then have an attitude of curiosity this week. And I think maybe that'll help you. Awesome. Well, the assignment is set, everyone. So make sure that you take that into this upcoming week, an attitude of curiosity, and then take the time to ask yourself a reflective question. Why do I do the things that I do? Why am I the way that I am? What's what's my belief system? Why is it come to be? So think about all those things as you go into the upcoming week. And I'm going to turn it over to Courtney. All right. Well, Ashley, it was such an amazing time interviewing you and discovering more about your book. I hope our listeners take the time to keep up with all you have going on and even purchase a copy. So can you go ahead and tell them how they can follow you as well as purchase a copy of your book? Yes. But before I do, I just want to say thank you to you both. You're wonderful interviewers and amazing women. And if I can say so, I'm so proud of you. The work that you're doing in the world is incredible and we need it. So thank you. If you guys want to buy my book, I would love that. Pre-orders actually help authors in a tremendous way. And so I'm on pre-orders right now. Please go to any any place where you purchase your books. I don't know if that's Amazon or if you like Bookshop. Wherever you get your books, you can find Love is the Resistance. And then I spend most of my time on Instagram. So if you want to come say hi over there in the DMs and I make silly reels with my husband sometimes. And, you know, I like to do wild things on the interwebs. It's fun. So I'd love to connect with you over there as well. (laughs) Awesome. I can tell you've got great energy. So I know you have a lot of great energy to offer to the social media. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much again, Ashley and Courtney, for joining us here in today's interview. Um, I myself am going to go ahead and get the book because this conversation has been eye-opening. And it's definitely a subject that is important to me as I'm working to be a change agent within my own society. So thank you for charging us to do that. And as always, remember to practice freedom. Bye, guys.